Please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 17, and we continue looking at this wisdom book. And today I want to speak to you by asking a question, who is a fool? I like to say right up front here that I have little experience on this matter. <clears throat> However, most of us have played that part at one time or another, haven't we? But in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. A good word to all of us. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding but only in expressing his own heart. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are the snare of his soul. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, there is this idea that intrigues any casual or serious reader. It is the idea of what is a fool. There are 10 different Hebrew words that are used for fool in the Old Testament. And all of these occur in the book of Proverbs, for the most, for, um, as I recall at least, but one of those words, for instance, uh, is the word to fade or to wither away. That's the idea of a fool in, uh, in the Psalms when the Scripture says that the fool said in his heart, there is no God. That's a man who is withering away, fading away. He has no life. He has no future. He is a fool. But the most common word and the word that is used in these four instances in our text passage is a word that was translated and comes out of the root word for fat. It would be spoken of of an animal. An animal was a fat animal when there was so much flesh and fat in the loin and the shanks that there was not room for anything else. No room, that's what it means. And the idea was ultimately enlarged to mean a fool is somebody who had no room for anybody else, no room for anyone but himself, no room for anybody's ideas, no room to take in counsel. He knew it all. And the, he became uh, known as the fool, and that's the way the word evolved, from fat to fool. It's to be filled up. It's what happened last week on family vacation when my grandchildren wanted me to make a milkshake. They all like Papa's milkshakes. And so I took the richest ice cream, and I took the richest M&Ms I could find, and the richest Hershey's syrup I could find, and then I used fat-free milk. Wasn't that kind of me? And uh, I made a delicious milk. I even sinfully stole one sip myself. And when they were done, little Megan said to me, Papa, I'm so full I couldn't put anything else in my stomach. That's what this word means. Full, fool, a person who is full of something. And there are four things in our text. It begins in verse 28 of chapter 17. First, a fool is a man 
who is full of words. He is full of words. Even a fool is counted wise if he holds his peace. Now, the contrast of the proverb line is that normally fools don't hold their peace. When he shuts his lips, even a fool is considered perceptive. So if you don't know what you're talking about, it's probably better for you not to talk about it. Amen? Now, isn't that simple? The whole point of chapter 17 and 18 is to show you how wisdom demonstrates itself, how wisdom uh, shows itself off, and, and the opposite is why he points out what a fool does. A man who is full of words has no room for silence in his life. He is constantly talking. He has always got a word about everything. And every one of us has met a person like that. He is a man full of words. That man is a fool, the Scripture says. Turn to Proverbs 14. Now watch, watch the text because it's a theme that goes all throughout the book. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. A fool wants to tell everything he knows, even if he doesn't know anything about it. The fool wants to tell you. He wants to give you advice. He wants to give you criticism. He wants to straighten you out. He wants to correct you. He wants to tell you. He's the one-upman. He, if you've got a good recipe for crab soup, he's got a better one. If you've got a good story, he's got a better one. He's always got a few more words, and he's never learned to hold his silence. There is no room in the mind or the heart or the life of a fool to listen because he already knows it all. The idea is supported again in chapter 15, verse 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. And so what happens is a fool hears something foolish, and he comes back with something that is even more foolish. It's not always correct, and it's not always necessary for you to say anything back to what somebody tells you. I had that happen to me this week. Somebody said something to me, and immediately I made a statement back, and I thought, Quartz, you don't need to say anything. Just hush. Just be still. Sometimes it's good to be silent. The wise man learns when to hold his peace. The man filled with the Spirit learns when to speak and when not to speak. Chapter 15, verse 2. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness, <laughs> just pours it forth. He's always got another word. He's always got the right thing to say. He's always got a better idea. Chapter 29, verse 20, when we're epitomizing the fool, there is this interesting word towards the end of Proverbs. And remember, this is a father giving this to a son. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, my nature, which I inherited from my father, I came by it rightly, is to be a problem solver and always have an answer. My dad could have 27 options for any one question. And so when something's discussed, I've always got an idea as to how to solve that. And I've had to ask the Lord to button my, to batten my hatch and to keep me quiet because sometimes I admire the man who sits and listens to the whole debate. 
And when everybody else has spoken their foolishness, that quiet man comes up with just the right word of wisdom. So the man who is hasty with his words, be careful, he says. There is more hope for a fool than a man who speaks and then thinks. I like to practice, I try in the power of the Holy Spirit to practice the rule of the second response. Don't always respond to the first thing you hear. Think that one through and go to the second response, and you may save yourself some embarrassment. Amen? That's the wise man filled with the Spirit whose tongue is not hasty. When I was a young pastor, I remember preaching on speaking too hastily, and I picked up a little, a little thing that I've never forgotten, a little uh, rhyme. I will always keep my words soft and sweet, lest any of them I must ever eat. Remember that. A man who is full of words has no room for silence. Who showed us the way on that? The wisest man who ever lived is the Lord Jesus. Here he is taken into Annas, and the only thing he does in Annas' presence is to ask that Annas justify the man who slapped him on his face. Then he's taken to Caiaphas, and in the middle of insults and mocks and taunts, he answers not a single word. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that he didn't respond or retaliate with anything. He kept his silence. He goes from Caiaphas to Pilate, and Pilate tries to engage him in a foolish, insincere, trivial discussion on truth. Imagine the light-minded, light-intellectual Pilate saying, what is truth? Our Lord knew more about truth in 30 seconds than Pilate had thought about in 60 years. And Jesus refused to respond. He didn't say a word to Pilate. So Pilate sends him over to Herod. Herod wants to see a miracle. Jesus doesn't speak a word. Send him back to Pilate. Jesus doesn't speak a word. He is a man of perfect wisdom. He knows everything about everything, but he doesn't have to tell all he knows. Some of us try to do that in the 10 or 15 seconds we have. I just, dis I, I have a pet peeve, and I do it myself sometimes, and, and I, I despise myself when I do it. And that is, I dislike being around somebody who's always trying to finish your sentences for you. Does that get to you? I mean, is that a pet peeve of yours? And sometimes I like to start a sentence and then stop and let them finish it and say, no, that's not what I mean at all. I just love to do that to them. You missed the whole thing. Somebody's always trying to fit. They know better what you're going to say than you know what you're going to say. No room for silence. The Lord Jesus had the perfect control. He knew when to speak and when to hold his silence. The fool, the Scripture says, is a man who doesn't know how to hold his peace or shut his lips. How about Job? He loses his family. He loses his flocks and herds. He loses everything he has. He gets a malady of boils. And he's got three friends who want to come along beside him and tell him everything they know. And it only takes a chapter or two for them to tell him everything they know. And then Job answers him in Job chapter 12. And he says, Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. 
Do you get what he's saying there? You guys think you know everything, don't you? And wisdom will die with you. There are some fools like that. We don't bear much of a witness to the power of Christ or the wisdom of God when we always play the part of the fool, Christian. And then Job went on to say in chapter 13, he says it again to them in verse 5, Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. I like that. He says to Zophar and his crew, Oh, that you would be silent. Would you just hush for a minute and let your silence be your wisdom? Some people cannot stand silence because they're uncomfortable with it. They need to say what's on their mind. We need to listen. We need to learn in the power of the Holy Spirit how to listen. The principle of the law of conversational sharing in share life, in sharing the gospel, is if I listen to what somebody else thinks about God, I've earned the right to tell them what I think about God. It's a very simple principle, but it's one of the greatest principles for sharing your faith that I know anything about. And it's a simple principle that anybody can practice in any conversation. You tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you what I think. No room for silence. After dealing with the elderly and with death for the past few weeks, we went on our family vacation. I think this is the seventh or eighth year where we've gotten all of our grandchildren together in one place, and all of the children are invited at one place. And believe it or not, the grandchildren, the cuz-cuz, don't fight. I mean, they did really well. And after being in nursing homes and hospitals, I was so glad to hear those kids. I said, yell, run, scream, do anything you want. I'm just glad to see life and hear life. This is terrific. Of course, by Tuesday, I was thinking, maybe I need a little rest. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. It was a great week, and it was a welcome relief. And those little grandchildren bring a lot of joy in your life. Amen. But I was watching at the pool one day, and these kids now all have these tubes. Have you seen those those tubes they buy, and they take them into the pool, and they lean on them and swim around, or they ride them like horses, or they jump off with them, and they see how many people can bury it in the pool and all of that. Well, this one that Allman, Becky's little boy, had had a, a hole running from one end to the other. It was empty all the way through, and there was a little girl in the pool. And, you know, you can take that tube. Sounds like some PA systems I've known in churches. And so they were talking to each other through the middle of the tube. By the way, not the PA system in this church. Don't you love the, we're tweaking it, we're getting it just right, but do you love the new system? We're going to get it down. If it's blasting you, hang on, we'll get it fixed for you. But it's, and look at the space we have up here. Uh, Tony, thanks for all the work. Where'd he go? Oh, he skipped, okay, all right. Well, he's heard it all before. But anyway, uh, Almond and, uh, and this little girl are sitting there, and they're both talking to the ends. She's talking, and he's talking. Papa, how come I can't hear? Because everybody's talking, and there's nobody who's got it up to the ear. Almond, take it from your mouth and put it on your ear and let her talk, and then you can hear through the tube. Oh, he said. It never occurred to him. And I thought, isn't that just like the fool of the book of Proverbs? always talking and never listening, always seeking to express himself. That leads me to the second observation of a fool in chapter 18, verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, 
but only in expressing his own heart. A fool is a man not only full of words, he's a man full of selfishness. He is full of himself. Look at chapter 18, verse 2. He has no delight in understanding. I won't forget when a man came through town a number of years ago, and he wanted to sell something to the church, and he took me out for lunch. And I, I am not interested in 98 of the things that people come to sell you, but I'll take a free lunch any day. Amen? Especially when it's at the Piedmont Club. But anyway, so he took me up to the Piedmont Club, and he told me, and I said, no, I'm not interested. And then he said something to me, and I always try to get something out of that. He said, have you read this new book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? And I hadn't read it. It was brand new. And on the way home, I stopped at a bookstore and got that book. And when I started reading it that night, I saw that one of the chapters written by a Mormon was the chapter on seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. And I thought, my, what a biblical idea that moment is brought up. What a biblical truth. Seek first to understand. The fool is a man who never seeks to understand. He has no room for the opinions, no room for the concerns, no sensitivity towards others. He has room only for himself, what he thinks. Chapter 12 of the book of Proverbs, verse 15. Look at it carefully. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. Underline and memorize that verse. The way of a fool is always right in his own eyes. He doesn't need anybody else's opinion. He is fat in the sense that he has no room for anybody else's opinion, only his own. And he cannot take counsel because he has no room to take counsel. Often he's a very insecure person. And somebody else's idea throws him off. He cannot listen to somebody else's concern. Man, I've, I've violated that more times than I care to remember. And I want to tell you, in the body of Christ, that is one of the ways that we show honor to each other and we defer to each other by listening to what the other person says before we speak, by seeking to understand others before we seek to be understood. Again, the writer of Proverbs training his son in chapter 14, verse 16 says, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. That's chapter 14, verse 16. Here is a man full of himself. He's like the two men who went up into the temple to pray. One was a publican and the other was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee comes before God and he says, Oh, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men extortioners unjust, or even like this old publican down here. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And God, you are really lucky to have me. Now, there's a man who has eyes only for himself. There's a man who has room only for himself. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot come into the presence of God without having eyes for God and God alone. When you come into the presence of God and you can only see yourself, you're in a very small world, and your God is too small at that point. The fool is a man not only full of words, but he's full of selfishness and makes judgments and decisions based only on what he thinks and has no room for the counsel of others. There's a man in the Old Testament by the name of Shimei. Anybody remember Shimei? 
Does that name mean anything to you? Absalom decided that David was not doing his job in maintaining justice. So Absalom would start a rebellion against the king, his dad. So he did, and he chased David from the throne, from the palace. And as David was leaving to hide from Absalom, he crossed a brook, and Shimei cursed him. Do you remember the man that cursed David? And David's soldiers wanted to go take vengeance on Shimei. And David said, let him alone. In essence, he said, God will take care of him. You know, God always does. God always does. Now turn over to 1 Kings chapter 2. David instructed Solomon that he was to bring Shimei back, give him a place in the city near the palace, but that he was to he was to severe to to guard him and and uh, and uh, uh, discipline him if he violated and he was he had a certain rule he put on Shimei in verse 36 of chapter 2 of 1 Kings. The king sent this is Solomon and called for Shimei and said to him Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anymore. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. You will reap what you as a fool with eyes only for yourself have said. He had mistreated the king and he was not to touch the Lord's anointed man. And Shimei said to the king in verse 38, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. But at the end of three years, two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Maka, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. Now, this man was so selfish that he was so angry that his slaves would leave him and so full of himself that he violated the king's order. Shimei arose, verse 40, saddled his donkey, went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves, and Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And the king sent and called for Shimei and said, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me the word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord? And the commandment that I gave you, the king said, Moreover to Shimei, you know as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness you did to my father David. Therefore now the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And what the fool had cursed, God established forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went and struck him down. And he died, and the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon, and David's detractors had been eliminated. A fool is a man who has no room for silence. He's full of words. He has no room for the opinions or the concerns or the feelings of others. He is full of selfishness. Thirdly, the writer of Proverbs suggests in chapter 18, verse 6, that a fool is a man full of contention. A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. What he says would justify a hundred blows or would justify punishment. That man is a foolish man who is full of contention. I remember one time I was called to a death. A woman had died. I went to the home. And as I walked into the house, I heard a terrible noise in one of the bedrooms. And it sounded as if a fight was going on. And it was, in fact. 
And the son and the daughter were fighting with each other and wrestling, and the mother was still dead in the bed. The funeral home had not arrived yet. And the, the guy weighed about 260 or 70 pounds, and the woman weighed about 210 or 20 pounds. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I thought of this. <laughs> um, I shouldn't get involved in this. A man, a fool, is a man who gets involved in contention. But I thought, if I don't, what am I going to do? Now, they didn't train me for this in school. I didn't get any training in how to stop a son and a daughter fighting at mother's death. But I'll never forget. I just prayed, and I said, I believe this one is one I better get into. So I walked into that bedroom, and I, like a fool, put my hands on their shoulders, and in my most authoritative voice, I said, stop it, <laughs> and started pulling them apart. And I fully expected a smash in the jaw. But they looked at me startled that anybody would speak to them that way. And I said, sit down. Normally, a fool enters into contention, and he will say too much, which will bring judgment on himself. A fool is a man who's always ready for an argument. He's always ready to dive into a discussion. He has no room for self-control. He conceals what is, is, uh, uh, what is, is uh, in his heart. Look at chapter, chapter 12. I want to show you this. Chapter 12, verse 16. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent or a wise man conceals what could bring shame to him. But the fool lets his anger be known. He lets his feelings be known. He's always ready to enter into an argument. He's always ready to enter into a fight. He's always got the last word. He's always got one up on you. That's not the man filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the man who's filled with the flesh. He's a man of strife. How many times in the New Testament does the word contentiousness as the fruit of the, of the flesh arise? He is a contentious. He is full of strife. A deacon is not to be a man of strife. An elder is not to be a man of strife. No room for self-control. Now, let me remind you that every one of us as believers lives in the divine economy of God. If we've been born again, we have the spirit of the old nature, the flesh in us, and we have the spirit of the new nature, the spirit. And we live by responses. The Christian life is a series of responses. If I respond to the flesh... I live by the flesh, and my life produces the fruit of the flesh. If I live by the will and act of the will and follow the principles God has laid down, I live by the Spirit. The moment I commit myself to obey what God commands, God empowers me with His Spirit to carry out what He's commanded. And I live in the power of the Spirit. I can either yield to the divine nature or I can yield to the old nature. And the Christian life is a constant series of choices. I can choose to get involved in contentiousness, or I can choose to be a peacemaker. I can choose to vent my feelings and live by my feelings, or I can choose to live in the power of the Spirit. Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man brings them under control. There it is. You can live by your feelings if you want to. I counseled a lady one time who said to me, uh, I don't love my husband anymore, and I'm not going to live with him. I'm leaving him. And I said, the Bible commands you to love your husband. She said, I don't feel like it. 
you wouldn't want me to be a hypocrite and do something I don't feel like doing, would you? I said, certainly. Certainly I would. God won't judge you according to your feelings. He'll judge you according to your actions by His Word. We live on a choice. I can either obey God or I can obey the flesh. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Let me remind you of this. Very, very important. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusts against the flesh. You have these natures in you, and the Holy Spirit lusts to control your body and produce the fruit of the Spirit. And the flesh lusts to control your body and produce the fruit of the flesh. For the flesh, verse 17, lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law of the flesh. If I obey the Spirit, the Spirit has power to defeat the law of the flesh. Now, if I live by the flesh, by my feelings and the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. There's that word, Shimei contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice and keep on practicing such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've really been saved, you cannot continue to practice. You might do these things. You might do one of these things. You might do some of these things, but you won't keep on practicing them. God won't let you. The divine nature in God will convict you and arrest your attention. For verse 22, if you yield to the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there's no law can mitigate against, no law can, can work against the power of the Spirit in your life. And every one of us has a choice. You can either follow the flesh or you can follow the Spirit. You can fulfill the lust of the flesh or you can fulfill the Word of God. The principles of the Word of God, practiced in the power of the Holy Spirit, produce divine fruit, character fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one last thing I, I think is in this passage. and That is in chapter 18, verse 7. A fool is not only a man full of words, he's a man full of selfishness, and he's a man full of contention. Everywhere he goes, he produces strife. But he's a man full of destruction, verse 7. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Be careful. This person has no room for hope. He is his own worst enemy. He is the exact opposite of the wisdom of God. He is a fool, and what he speaks out of his mouth is his source of destruction. It happens all the time. We say too much, or we brag too much. Then we fail. Then we think we become a victim. Then we develop bitterness because we're victimized by others. We always tell people all of our problems so that nobody wants to be around us. Now we think people are picking on us. Then we develop bitterness. See how it works? It works over and over and over again in a variety of ways until bitterness becomes the end of what a man says, what a man sets for his life, what level he sets of integrity, what level he sets of sociability, what level he sets of wisdom with his mouth. 
is a source of destruction or a source of hope. Chapter 15, the writer of Proverbs, remember, a father writing to his son, says in verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See, if somebody's angry at you, don't answer them back with anger or you only make it more angry. So you answer with a soft word, verse 2. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. And the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. But now look at verse 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15, 4. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now his point is that perverseness in the tongue of a fool doesn't break somebody else's spirit. It breaks his own spirit. It leads to the destruction of the fruit of God in his life so that the man dies a bitter person. You know, I pray as I get older, one thing I don't want is for God to let me become a bitter old man. I like to be a happy old man. Amen? How many of you? You know, so I watch older people sometimes, and as they get older, sometimes they can get so bitter, and they can feel so harsh at life. If you're growing older, grow old joyfully and praise God for every day and every month and every year. Amen? And don't let the devil make you bitter. Keep what goes out of your mouth a wise fountain of life. After all, Christ is the source of the fountain of life. Let me take my disappointments. Let me take my bitternesses. Let me take my, my broken dreams. Let me take my mistakes, my sins, my Christ life, and lay it at the cross where the wisest men of all who knew when to speak and when to be quiet, and at the end of life made only seven statements. That's all he made, and that's all that was needed to be. He didn't dictate the World Book Encyclopedia. He said, I thirst. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He said, it is finished. And seven things like that, he said, and it was done. Oh, let us grow into the character image of Christ by showing forth wisdom and not foolishness. For a fool is a man who leads to his own destruction. It's a woman who leads to her own destruction. You're your own worst enemy. You are your own downfall by what you say. And what you do. And there's no room for hope in that person's life. We could go Friday morning. We buried my dad. In the little church in a little farming town where he grew up. On a farm three miles out from there. Dad had gone into the show on Friday night. And saw people going into the church for revival. So he went to the revival. And he heard the preacher on Friday night. And he came back the next night on Saturday night. There are two little center sections, and then there are two smaller side sections. And he was over in the side section. And he said two beefy deacons came, and one sat on one end, one sat on the other. And the preacher preached on the crucifixion. And he held out hope in the cross. And he held out hope that Jesus had died for all of our sins and all of our failures and all of our bitternesses. And dad was on the second or third pew, and he came under such conviction, and he couldn't get the deacons to move. He was 15. Seventy years ago, he was saved in the very church where we buried him. And he sat over there, and he couldn't get the deacons to move, so he just got up and stood on top of the pews and walked right down over the pews to the front. 
he was under such conviction he had to come and be saved. And all the brothers spoke and the grandchildren spoke and my sister sang. The service was an hour and a half. Courses, of course, are meant a few words. Thank you. <laughs> but it was a wonderful service. We went out to the burial plot where my great-grandparents are buried who came from Germany. And after the committal service, one of my cousins came over to me and said, I want to see you a minute. Would you just step over here and let me talk to you? I had a, an Aunt Ruth who died in 1943 of double pneumonia. I can remember when she lay a corpse in Granddad's house. And she had four boys that Grandma and Granddad had to raise. And whenever we would come to the farm, they were always there, the Miller boys. And this is Larry, the one who's one year under me. He said, I need to talk to you for a minute. He said, I've been holding a bitterness against your dad. I never understood why Uncle Harold handled Grandma's estate the way he did. And I've been angry and bitter. And I refused. I didn't even come to your brother's funeral because I was angry at Uncle Harold. And he said, this bitterness is about to kill me. And he said, as I've sat here at this funeral today and listened, I've understood that that was just Uncle Harold's way. That's the way he did everything. And I am so sorry for the bitternesses that I've held. But now Uncle Harold is dead, and I don't know what to do with my bitterness. You're a pastor. Can you tell me what to do with my bitterness? I said, oh, yes, Larry. We, we, I said, Dad's not here to forgive you, but the best way I know how, I forgive you. And I will forgive you for what you felt against my dad. But then you've got to confess it to God. But God has promised because of the blood of Christ and the death of Christ that he would forgive our sins, our failures, our bitternesses, and wipe us clean, cleanse our conscience, give us a new start. And you can do that right now. And we bowed our head just 30, 30 feet from Dad's graveside and prayed together. He was sobbing before when we finished praying and he had committed it to the Lord. It's just like God had taken the bitterness and pulled the plug on it and taken it out of his heart. And you know, God will do that for any of you and all of us. That's what the cross is about. The wise man is the one who went to the cross so that we would not be fools in this world lacking wisdom. He went to the cross so that we could be the wisdom of God in a witness to the world. And that's God's purpose for you and for me. Amen.